The Seahawks put on a defensive clinic holding the Cardinals to just three points in their victory on Sunday. I still can't believe I'm saying that. How do the Seahawks pull it off? Rob Rang and I are going to be taking the covers back a little bit and looking at some schematic changes Seattle made to execute a dominant defensive game plan against the Cardinals yesterday on our Monday episode of Locked On Seahawks. You are Locked On Seahawks, your daily Seattle Seahawks podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Greetings, 12. This is Corbin Smith, your host for Locked On Seahawks. Joining me for our Monday episode, my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. Thanks to all the 12s out there, as always, for making Locked On Seahawks. Your first lesson, five days a week. We greatly appreciate it. The Seahawks moving back to 500 yesterday, third win of the season. Maybe a little bit of an upset over the high-powered Arizona Cardinals, a 19-9 win, a game that ended up turning into a defensive slugfest, something I think very few people could have predicted going into this game at Lumen Field. We're going to take a look at what the Seahawks did defensively to have that success against the Arizona Cardinals and Kyler Murray, some schematic stuff, X's and O's and some adjustments in terms of how they use their personnel. We'll be diving into that, answering your mailbag questions in our Monday mailbag, and our in-depth weekly takeaways after we've had a chance to rewatch the film, offense, defense, and special teams, our Monday musings. All of that coming up on a jam-packed episode that's brought your way by Prize Picks. Prize Picks is daily fantasy made easy. Pick two to five players, and if they score more or less than a Prize Picks projection, you can win up to 10 times your money on any entry. First time users can receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with the promo code locked on. That's prizepicks.com, promo code locked on. Now for your lead story here on our Monday edition of Locked On Seahawks. Going into yesterday's game against the Arizona Cardinals. The Seahawks were near the bottom of the NFL in pretty much every meaningful statistic on defense. They were 31st in the NFL, giving up almost 31 points per game. Teams were running ragged on them week in, week out. They gave up two 100-yard rushers in a loss to the Saints a week ago. They made the wrong kind of history in the run game. They were missing tackles left and right, giving up more explosives than any team in the league. And then they go out yesterday against Kyler Murray and the high-powered Cardinals, even without DeAndre Hopkins, still plenty of weapons on offense. And Rob, they limit them to three points on the offensive side of the ball, 4.4 yards per play. It was an utterly dominant performance by Seattle's defense that was, of course, aided by the Cardinals going for it and for it down every time they got anywhere near a field goal and not converting on any of those opportunities. But nonetheless, to go out, and especially the way the first drive went, the Cardinals marched right down the field after that point, Nothing was easy for the Cardinals. Kyler Murray was under constant duress. And you look at this game, and really, it felt like Ken Norton Jr. went back on the field because the Seahawks were doing a lot of schematic stuff that was pre this 3-4 change that they made this year under Clint Hurt. Yeah, that's the thing, is that, as you said, Corbin, when the game first began, Arizona takes the very first drive and just marches their way down the field. Kyler Murray looks every bit the wily Coyote that I kind of thought that he might be in, in this game. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, the Cardinals are going to put 40 up on you. Geno Smith and the Seahawks offense are going to have to put it 45 if you want to win. So to see Seattle be able to make those adjustments, to limit that offense to that very first drive, 
where they got that field goal. And after that, they basically pitched a shutout from the uh, from Arizona's offensive side of the ball. Seattle's defensive side of the ball mentality truly was a spectacular performance by the Seahawks defense. And I think we have to give a lot of credit to the, the 12s out there because they were loud. They were, I think, a little bit enraged. And I think that you could see that and hear that um, in the way that the Seahawks perform the rest of the game. So to me, this was the most impressive game of the season to this point. I think you have to certainly acknowledge what happened in week one and obviously the expectation that Seattle might lose that that week one game against the Denver Broncos. But considering every all the emotions and things, we, we talked about that. That might be a game that the Seahawks might be able to kind of eke out just because of the emotions involved. But as you said, I mean, there were not very many people who predicted that the Seahawks might be able to win this game. I was among them. I I could pat myself on the back and say, hey, I thought the Seahawks might win that game against the Broncos, might struggle in some of those other games. I thought the Seahawks would struggle in this game, and instead they flipped the script. That's why Pete Carroll is, at least in my opinion, absolutely a Hall of Fame coach. The Seahawks were dominant against the Arizona Cardinals. They flexed a little bit on the defensive side of the ball, got what they needed to get done on the offensive side of the ball, and emerged with the win. Yeah, let's talk schematics here for a second. Now, for those of the 12s listening that want to see plays in action, we are not allowed to do that. We can't post all 22 on the show. However, we can show some screenshots. And I think one of the big difference makers for the Seahawks yesterday, and we've talked about this ad nauseum the last three or four weeks, the inconsistencies of the defensive line, especially players like Puna Ford that have gotten off to a slow start. Puna Ford had a monster game yesterday. And I think one of the reasons that he did, and Pete Carroll acknowledged it this morning on his weekly interview on Seattle Sports 710. They were playing him in one-gapping situations as more of an edge player, not head up as a two-gapper where he just isn't as good of a player, doesn't fit his skill set. They were doing that by running their bare fronts. And we'll post a snapshot here for our YouTube listeners, but a bare front, the difference between that style front compared to what the Seahawks have been playing up at this point, they've had their defensive tackles in zero tech at the nose spot. That doesn't change here, but they've had their other two defensive tackles in four-eye alignment, and they've been playing as read and react defenders. They're mirror stepping. They're not penetrating and attacking into a single gap. That changes in their bare fronts because those two defensive tackles are in three techs. They are right over the B gap, and they are one-gap players. And how that really changes the game for somebody like Puna Ford That one gapping responsibility, he is given the green light to penetrate rather than mere step with those read and react principles. And we saw that on display in yesterday's game time and time again. And it was not just Puna Ford, Rob. Even Shelby Harris, who's been playing in a 3-4 defense for a long time with the Denver Broncos under Vic Fangio. He's played in this scheme. Even he was getting after it as a penetrator. We got to see Brian Monet have three pressures from the nose tackle position. They were getting contributions from Quentin Jefferson, had a huge fourth down sack. And Jefferson even said after the game, hey, he just cut us loose. Clint Hurt let us go. We aren't reading and reacting as much. He wants to penetrate. He wants to be in attack mode. And that's what you get from an athletic defensive tackle. You're playing to his strengths. It kind of was like the Patriots with their backup quarterback they're playing with right now that they've kind of found their identity on offense. It looks like the Seahawks are starting to figure out their identity. It might not be exactly what they were hoping with this new scheme. 
because they got to play to the strengths of the personnel. And that's most notable along the defensive line. The entire rest of the defense fed off the way that they were able to play, particularly with their defensive tackles. They really set the tone in this football game. And a lot of it had to do with the scheme change up there. It really did. I mean, as you just saw, and as all of our YouTube listeners or and watchers just saw, um, you know, with, with Corbin putting up that that graphic, you basically have that nose guard right up, man on man on the center. And Brian Monet and I have a great deal of confidence that Al Woods would have been similarly successful, just overpowered Arizona center at, at yeah. times in this game. But it really was, uh, you know, just kind of giving Puna Ford, Miles Adams, who also was pictured there, Shelby Harris, as you mentioned. Um, you know, I think that, that that's putting Seattle's guys in a better position to succeed. Seattle's got a lot of guys who have great, great initial quickness they use their hands very well they're just not long and strong um, and, and so they don't fit the mold of that classic three four defensive end you know one of the guys that did fit that mold the seahawk fans might remember was, was red bryant i mean and, and Pete, that was one of the very first things that Pete carroll did when he came to seattle is he kind of moved big red outside allow, out, allowed him to play that kind of five technique position and be able to hold up at the point of attack i mean this is a man who is 6'4", 330 pounds. It's a very different type of frame than what Puna Ford has at 5'10", 300 pounds. I mean, he is short and he's super quick. And, and his ability to get upfield, we saw in this game, he was absolutely spectacular in, in this game. I mean, he was constantly wreaking havoc. Uh, and, and then again, with, with Miles Adams getting some playing time, and that's one of the things I definitely want to mention in our in our show today, Corb. I think this was kind of a theme throughout the day, is that it wasn't just Puna Ford. It was some of these other players on offense, defense, and special teams that were getting their opportunities. There was a certain hunger on the field again. There were jobs on the line. I think that there was a desperation from Seattle that we saw, you know, kind of come through in, in this game. And I think that's one of the biggest reasons why Seattle had the success they did. They had it schematically. They also had it mentally in, in this performance. And so to me, that's why I thought I would agree with what Pete Carroll said in his post-game press conference. This was Seattle's most impressive all-around performance of this young season. Yeah, there may have been some other factors at play. You know, maybe Kyler Murray was playing too much Mario Kart or too much Call of Duty before the game, and that led to some of the struggles the Cardinals had. But I digress. That's taken away from what the Seahawks accomplished in this game. And they were dominant, really, the entire game after a couple of big plays that first drive really shut the Cardinals down, executed their game plan for perfection, mixed in some fire zone blitzes effectively. Ryan Neal had one of those six sacks mm -hmm. doing just that. So I thought Clint Hurd did a great job of really maximizing his personnel. And it was the first time watching this defense this year that I felt like I see an identity that's developing. And they had to go back to some of the basics to get there. We'll have more time to talk defense later in the show because – you give up three points, the Arizona Cardinals, with their starting quarterback out there and Kyler Murray, a dynamic player. you got to give as much praise as possible, especially given how poorly the defense had played in the first five games of the season. We're going to get to our mailbag coming up next year on our Monday episode. We'll answer as many of our listener questions as we can. We'll get to that here in a moment. 
We've got a big Monday night football game going on right now between the Broncos and Chargers. I picked Justin Herbert to throw for 300 yards and three touchdowns, while Russell Wilson would snap out of his funk with a pair of touchdown passes to Cortland Sutton. Those might seem like bold leaps, especially with how the Broncos offense has played in the first five weeks of the season. But with prize picks, it's easy to play daily fantasy and put those entries to the test. Pick two to five players, and if they score more or less than their prize picks projection, you can win up to 10 times your money on any entry. No competing against other people. It's just you versus the projections available. Price Picks offers projections in any sport you could watch, whether it's the NBA, MLB, NHL, even disc golf. Entries can be made in 60 seconds or less. It's that easy. Safe and fast withdrawals and currently operational in over 30 states as well as Canada. Make sure to download the Price Picks app or go to pricepicks.com to sign up and play daily fantasy sports. First-time users can receive a 100% instant deposit match up to $100 with the promo code Locked On. If you deposit $100, Price Picks will give you $100. Don't forget to enter the promo code Locked On at sign up for an instant deposit match up to $100. You're listening to the Monday edition of Locked On Seahawks. This is your host Corbin Smith rejoining me after a little bit of a hiatus here. My co-host in crime, Rob Rang. Thanks to all the 12s for making Locked on Seahawks your first listen five days a week. We greatly appreciate it. And make sure to check out the NFL Key Predictions Show. It comes every Friday on Locked on NFL. Locked on's local experts give you the inside scoop on the five biggest games of the NFL weekend, including Sunday and Monday night football, plus betting advice from the field's leading experts at Bet Online. Follow NFL Key Predictions every Friday on Locked on NFL, available on the Odyssey app, YouTube, and wherever you get your podcasts. All right, let's get to our Monday mailbag. We got plenty of questions coming from the 12s. And obviously, Rob, we are getting very close or drawing closer to the NFL trade deadline. So there's plenty of questions about potential roster move for the Seahawks, among other things. Let's get to it. First question here from Chase Landa tweets. And Rob, I think this is definitely a good question to ask after yesterday's win. Now the Seahawks are tied for first place in the NFC West. How should the Seahawks address the trade deadline? Should they be buyers or sellers? This really feels like one of those that's very much up in the air right now, especially after that win over the Cardinals. Yeah, that's the thing. Is I, I hesitate to answer this uh, question with an emphatic answer because I, I understand. People want to say, oh, we're definitely buyers. Oh, we're definitely sellers. I think you definitely have to be listeners at this point. Christian McCaffrey, at least has been reported, is suddenly available. And the Carolina Panthers, you know, earlier traded Robbie Anderson to the aforementioned Arizona Cardinals. And that makes some sense considering the fact that they just had a horrific injury to their stud receiver, Marquise Brown. Uh, perhaps Brian Burns might be available, the edge rusher from Carolina. That would make some sense for Seattle, considering that they have struggled at least until this last game to be able to get themselves any type of consistent pass rush. But at the same time, I think that this draft class coming up in the 2023 draft looks like a very good one. And Seattle is so well suited. And you have some really interesting players on your team that are basically exceeding expectations. Everybody's going to talk about the rookie class. Everybody is going to talk about the quarterback in in Geno Smith. But I also think that we are, again, starting to see the way that Seattle has historically altered their defense over that first month of the season. It has taken them some time, but this is the very first indication that we have that that Seahawks defense is going to kind of wake up from their their summer slumber and really start to play a little bit of football. 
So sure, if some other team out there is willing to give you a good quality veteran for a low draft pick, then absolutely, I think that John Schneider should be willing to pull the trigger just because he does have a little bit more draft picks than normal. But at the same time, I do not think that Seattle should be sellers at this point because I don't see any position of such great strength, perhaps other than tight end, that I think that you might be able to peddle somebody and actually get something of quality in return. Yeah, they don't really have a lot of players that I think are going to be generating a lot of interest on the trade market. So as far as sellers are concerned, probably not going to be going that route regardless of what happens from here on out. But maybe John Schneider will become a buyer with some of the draft picks that they have at their disposal if they keep winning football games. This question from Seattle Seacrow tweets, it really bounces off your question, what would make it worth it to pursue Brian Burns of the Carolina Panthers? What's the most draft capital they should consider to just try him out for the rest of this season? I think that's really the issue when we're talking about Brian Burns here. You're talking about a rental and a player that you would have to try to find a way to extend him. And he's been productive. Nine sacks each of the past two seasons, had seven and a half sacks as a rookie. This year, already, I believe, has four and a half sacks for the Panthers. He's been one of their bright spots. But I've always looked at him as a very similar player to Daryl Taylor. I think that he's a player that is a little light, especially in his lower body, not a player that necessarily holds up well against the run. I think he's been a little better there than what I expected coming into the league. He's obviously got the burst, the quickness, the twitch off the edge. And Seattle loves to have as many guys they can like that. They can pin their ears back, get up to the quarterback. But I just don't know with him being a rental player, I don't think I'd be willing to give up anything more than a third or fourth round pick. And I just can't see Carolina willing to give him up as a 24-year-old pass rusher for anything less than a second rounder given circumstances. I know that they're trying to sell some players to get draft picks and maybe they'd be more willing to take a mid-round pick for him. But I just can't see with him being kind of a one-dimensional player, being a situational pass rusher, you already have that in Daryl Taylor and he's coming off his best game of the season. Maybe he's waking up, they figure out how to best utilize his skill set with some of the scheme tweaks they did. I just don't think that it would make a lot of sense there are a couple other players in the Panthers that might be worth calling uh, your buddy up and uh, seeing if you can make a trade, John Schneider. Uh, but I just can't see Brian Burns being the target unless they're like, hey, fourth round pick, here you go. Then, of course, you're going to be listening in that instance. Next question from Mike Burns tweets, did moving Damian Lewis ruin what was looking like a Pro Bowl right guard? The move seemed unnecessary. This question's going to keep popping up because his play has just been so up and down since moving to the left side. It has been up and down, and that would be one of my initial concerns as well because I, I saw a player on tape at the at LSU that I really loved his, his physicality. I loved his initial quickness. I loved his mind, and I thought that that, it, you know, considering a 6'2", uh, I thought that that projected very nicely to that center position where Seattle, of course, has struggled. And so I thought if you were going to make a move there, then move him over to center, of course, a position at which he played in an emergency role. And I thought he played pretty darn well um, a couple of years ago. I, I understand the, the sentiment behind this. At the same time, left guard is a much dip, more difficult position in a lot of ways than that right guard position is. Right guard historically has been a guy that's been able to come off the ball and be able to create some push in the running game. And Seattle certainly still has that. And Gabe Jackson, the former pro bowler himself, and then Phil Haynes as well. Damian Lewis, again, has good lateral agility as well as that power. 
So I think if you were able to get yourself a very good left guard, Seattle had one of the greatest of all time. His name is up in the rafters. He's wearing the yellow jacket, Steve Hutchinson. If you have a guy who can be dominant at the left guard position and you pair him with a terrific left tackle, which it looks like Seattle has now in their rookie in Charles Cross, then, then you really can get excited about some things. Because again, you're normally at left guard being able to protect the blind side of your quarterback. I, I like what Seattle did there in the case of, I, I think that Damian Lewis is a really good young player, but I have been a little bit disappointed. I, we have not seen Damian Lewis be able to take that next step. I'm eager to see if he is able to kind of, you know, get his game going a little bit because I think that he does have the talent to be a stalwart, whether it be at left guard, center, or right guard. That to me is the greatest strength of Damian Lewis is that he really does offer you a great deal of flexibility across the interior. Next question coming from Dennis tweets, what's up with the rotations going on at left cornerback right now? Are the Seahawks keeping the seat warm for Trey Brown? It's starting to look to me, Rob, like that's kind of where things are trending for the Seahawks. But I will say this, Mike Jackson has not been bad over there. I think that, you know, jumping to the conclusion that he has lost the starting job over there, I think would be the wrong interpretation I think he's played fairly well as a first-time starter they've been trying to sprinkle in Sidney Jones Artie Burns got some reps the week before before he re-aggravated his groin it feels like that was where the Seahawks wanted to maybe go with this right now can Artie Burns be that starter on the left side he just has not been able to get that groin issue healed all the way he just keeps re-aggravating it and so now you're getting closer to Trey Brown in the next few weeks, probably going to be getting back on the practice field. At least that's what the Seahawks are hoping. You get him back healthy and he's ready to play in a game the way he played last year. I think that is ultimately what Pete Carroll wants. He would love to have Trey Brown and Tariq Woolen as his two outside corners. And Kobe Bryant keeps getting better in the slot each week. You would have three starting corners that have one or two years of experience. I mean, you would be set for the next three years minimum with those guys as your corners. And we've seen what Woolen and Bryant are doing. Brown was equally impressive last year in his handful of starts before he got hurt. So I do think they are keeping that seat warm for him as long as he can come back fully healthy. That is a big if. They got to get him on the practice field to see where he's at. But I think if Sidney Jones was going to be the guy, he would have gotten back in the lineup at this point. And I don't think that Mike Jackson has played bad enough football for them to turn around and say, well, we're going to take you out of the lineup and put somebody else in. Trey Brown, on the other hand, has a really good chance that he's healthy to take that spot back. And last question here, real quick. This one coming from Jackson tweets, I love the show. And thank you, Jackson. We appreciate it. Looking at where this team is right now, have they exceeded your expectations or is this about how you thought the season would start? And I think this is a really interesting question to look at now that there's been six games in the books because maybe the records aren't far off from where we thought the Seahawks were going to be. But I'm sure there's some differentiation with how the season's played out from what we predicted several months ago. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I said prior to the season, I thought the Seahawks were going to finish 6-10. and 10. 
and, and the fact that they've already got half of those wins at three and three, then I will certainly raise my hand up and say, and they're exceeding my expectations. No, no one more so than Geno Smith. Um, I think that he has thrown some spectacular passes this season. There have been some lumps along the offensive line, but you had to expect that with the two rookie offensive tackles. Um, the rookies on the defensive side of the ball, Boye Mafe has suddenly been pushed into much more of a prominent role. Tariq Woolen has been the defensive rookie of the year so far. I don't expect a lot of national pundits to say that because, frankly, I don't think that a lot of national pundits have watched every single one of the Seahawks games, of course, is the way that you and I have and so many of our listeners. And again, as Corbin said earlier, thank you so much to all of our listeners. So, yeah, I think that they have exceed expectations at this point. And I think that this is a legitimate playoff team because the NFC as an entirety just feels like it's a little bit weaker right now. And and I have yet to see a team other than the San Francisco 49ers. And of course, you get another opportunity against them um, a little bit later this year. I've yet to see a team in the NFC West really kind of seize that opportunity. So, yeah, compete on. I think this is going to be setting out to be a very exciting season. And Pete Carroll is once again proving himself to be a Hall of Fame coach who that's what he does is exceed expectations. Yeah, I would say that the Seahawks have exceeded expectations in regard to what I predicted. I don't know that I would go as far as saying that it's been stunning with a 3-3 three and three record. I'd have to go back and listen to our show from several months back. But I feel like I had the Seahawks off to a little better start than what you did record-wise, if I remember yep. correctly. So yep. I might have been in that 3-3 three and three or 3-4 three and four window where the Seahawks were around 500 at this stage of the season. But the way they've gotten here is what has really surprised me and really gives me more optimism heading into the rest of the schedule that they're going to be able to win a lot more games than people thought. The offense, even yesterday when things were not going right in the red zone and the offensive line was struggling, they still converted at least field goals in the game where it was really hard to score points. And I thought Geno Smith still made some very good throws while under constant duress. And they were able to get some clutch plays from Ken Walker the third. I mean, the offense is still playing more than well enough to be able to win football games. If your defense can come anywhere close to playing the way they did yesterday, though, after the rough start in the first five games, that suddenly starts to look like a Pete Carroll coach football team. And you don't want to play a Pete Carroll coach football team that is playing the game the way he wants it to be played at a high level. We've seen what that looks like. And the Seahawks win a lot of games when that formula is working. And so... I think that that would be the difference here is I thought middle of the season, this would be a team. Well, if they get a handful of wins, probably not going to get a lot more after that. The way the NFC looks and the way this team is slowly developing and the rookies are impacting games and Geno Smith is playing so above and beyond what we thought he was going to do. I think that's where the big difference is for me and that I have a much more optimistic lens for them with the rest of the season. And we shall see what happens. We're going to get to our Monday musings here in a moment, taking a closer look at that big victory over the Cardinals yesterday, what the Seahawks did so well on defense and on offense, special teams, and might not be quite as positive in that aspect of the game when we talk about that. But we'll get to our takeaways coming up here next on our Monday episode. If you haven't tried Built Bar Puffs yet, you are depriving yourself of one of life's greatest joys. And guess what? There's a new flavor Cookie Dough Chunk Puffs. They're light with a chewy texture, real cookie dough chunks, and of course, they're covered in 100% real chocolate. You get all the joys of eating cookie dough without the hassle of making it. And really the best part for me, when I have a sweet tooth, 160 calories 
and just 15 grams of protein. So not only does it taste good, it is healthy. Run to Built.com to snag a box for you and the family. It's the perfect treat. Or you can be like me and find a really good hiding place and just hoard them for yourself and away from your wife. Hopefully my wife is not listening to this ad. What's great about Built is that all their bars are made with collagen protein, which your body absorbs more efficiently and provides tons of health benefits. Eat something that tastes good and is good for you. You are going to love the new cookie dough chunk puff. Whether you need a snack for your workout, a late night treat, or just need to grab a quick bite, Built is the perfect protein bar. Go to Built.com and use the promo code LOCKEDON15 and you'll get 15% off your next order. That's Built.com, the promo code LOCKEDON15 to get 15% off your next order. You're listening to the Locked On Seahawks podcast, Monday edition. I'm Corbin Smith. Joining me as always, my co-host in crime, Rob Rang. We appreciate all the 12s out there for making Locked On Seahawks your first listen five days a week. And for your second listen, make sure to check out the Peacock and Williams NFL show. It's daily, just like our podcast. Brian Peacock and former NFL scout Matt Williamson give you the expert analysis in less than 30 minutes. It's free and available wherever you get your podcast. All right, Rob, it's Monday Musings time, and I know you and I have been chomping at the bit to talk a little bit more about this matchup because the Seahawks and the Cardinals, everybody was expecting this is going to be another shootout. There's going to be points galore. The scoreboard's going to stop working, you name it. And yet we were in a field goal battle for most of this game, and the Seahawks luckily were able to get a lot more opportunities for Jason Myers. The Cardinals couldn't convert on a bunch of fourth downs, and the Seahawks end up escaping with a dominant defensive effort 19 to 9 victory moved to three and three three-way tie for first place in the nfc west let's talk about some key takeaways coming out of this game now that you and i both had a chance to rewatch the film and of course we're going to start on the offensive side of the ball only 19 points they only scored one touchdown in this game and yet it still felt like they were fairly efficient against a defense that really brought their a game and had a great game plan with coordinator vance joseph yeah, I, I think that there there's so many different storylines that I want to touch upon this. I, I'm just going to kind of mention a few of them. For one, I, I mentioned this a little bit earlier. I just thought that the Seahawks played hungrier than I had seen in a while. I think some of that has to do with the fact that they just were giving some other players a little bit more opportunity. We, we kind of talked about Miles Adams, the defensive tackle position. The fact that they were allowing the interior defensive linemen, especially to kind of pin their ears back. We saw it result in several big plays for Puna Ford. And again, I know that we're supposed to be talking about offense here, so I would kind of carry that over to suddenly we are seeing D. Eskridge get a little bit more opportunities and taking advantage of those opportunities. Marquise Goodwin taking advantage of those opportunities. Corbin, you and I had talked previously about the fact that Will Disley was leading all NFL tight ends in, in touchdowns over the first couple of weeks of the season. So it was good to see Noah Fant, to see Kobe Parkinson continue to make some, some big plays here. To me, that was definitely spectacular. But I think on the offensive side of the ball, if we were to crown one player as being the player of the game for the Seahawks, then he wears number nine. And to me, this was the game to highlight Seattle's rookies because they were unbelievable in this game. And Ken Walker III was absolutely, you know, leading that charge. I mean, he was spectacular. I mean, the, the, the short steps, the, the quickness, the vision, the underrated power, uh, his ability to run through tackles, his ability to make people miss. I literally asked my wife to stop what she was doing and watch a replay of a 
a carry where Ken Norton got stopped for one yard. And that's just because he made three different people miss in the backfield. I mean, his ability to make people miss, his ability to duck and dive and elude uh, you know, defenders was unbelievable in this game. And, and so to me, Seahawks fans get excited because, and again, we talked about this before. I, I, I'm heartbroken over what happened with Rashad Penny. But at the same time, I am elated by the pure talent that Ken Walker III is for the Seahawks. Again, get ready, Seahawks fans, because this kid is absolutely dynamic. Well, there's a reason that there's kind of, I don't know if it's even a joke at this point, there's a lot of people out there that think that Mel Tucker at Michigan State, all the millions he got paid, he should be thanking directly Ken Walker III for getting that contract with the numbers that he put up for the Spartans last year. I've said this a lot of times on our show, and you and I both kind of subscribe to this. I am not a huge fan of comps. That's not something that I like to throw out a lot. You know, I'll look at individual traits, and that's what I'm going to do right here. And I'm going to go in the Wayback Machine long before I was on this planet, but I've gotten to watch a lot of film on Gail Sayers when he played for the Chicago Bears. Now, much different body type than Ken Walker III. He was taller, leaner. Ken Walker's short, has the thick legs. They don't look anything alike. But the reason I'm throwing the name Gail Sayers out there, Gail Sayers even said it himself. He had a unique playing style. He was a herky-jerky runner that had incredible balance. And defenders trying to tackle him were not on balance. And a lot of times they just fell off of him when they tried to tackle him. I saw that yesterday on the run that Ken Walker III made, bouncing out to his right. It looked like he was bottled up. There were three or four defenders off there, and it was like bowling pins. Like, they were all sliding. Like, the the turf had, like, um, butter all over it. And these guys were flailing, and it's like they were perfectly set up to tackle him, and they were just bouncing off of him. The contact balance, the herky-jerky shiftiness that he brings to the table – it's weird saying Gale Sayers because when you watch them run side by side and you're thinking, you know, these guys aren't similar, but the ability to get defenders off balance and maintain their own balance, that creates power in itself. Gale Sayers was fantastic at that, one of the best at it. And I think that might be the best attribute in Ken Walker III's game. A lot of other things that he does really well, but his contact balance is elite. It really is. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't want to make a joke about this, but, you know, for those of you who have seen the movie Dodgeball, when, you know, the guy comes out there and he, he's throwing different, you know, hand tools at people, dip, duck, dive. If you all, can all dodge things. a wrench, you can dodge a ball. Exactly. And that's <laughs> well done, sir. And that's exactly what he did. I mean, he was spectacular in that, you know, and, and I'll just, rather than us just kind of gush about Kenny Walker III, because I hope there's going to be lots of games in which we gush about him. Uh, I would just say that uh you know a different perspective here is that i thought that junior smith had a good game i didn't think that he was absolutely dominant the way that he had been in a couple of these other performances and certainly i thought that kyler murray you know i, I would agree with you I, I think that you know for all of that talk about the arizona cardinals when their initial contract that they wanted kyler murray to uh you know to, to study the game a little bit more he did look like he had been studying a little bit more video games than he had been the, the game plan here and i initially thought that maybe that was because of the haze in the air i mean it was just difficult to see um you know especially if you are a quarterback who maybe doesn't have the most dynamic downfield receivers in the case of kyler murray your guy that doesn't have a, a great deal of starter experience in the case of geno smith but i think that you have to certainly acknowledge the 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 defensive 
coordinators in this game and the way that they were able to create some pressure. So again, from Seattle's offensive side of the ball, I thought that this was a game in which Arizona's defense, I thought had moments where I thought they were going to be able to take over this game. They might be able to get a pick six. They might be able to get a fumble return for a touchdown. Obviously we'll talk about the, the, the block punt here in a little bit, but I thought the Seattle's offensive line came through when they had to. And it's, it is, again, certainly much easier to do when you were able to run the football as well as they did. So, again, that's my kind of circuitous way of getting back to the fact that Seattle's ability to run the football very effectively and Arizona's inability to do the exact same thing, that to me was absolutely the difference in this game. Yeah, that was one of the big differences. And and I would agree with you that Gino was not dynamic like we had seen the previous couple of weeks. And there were a couple of times that I thought he held onto the ball a bit too long, but that's really overlooking the one big negative coming out of this game. And I don't necessarily even think it's a big negative because this offensive line, when you've stopped, you've got two rookies starting a tackle, there was eventually going to be a game where the roller coaster is going to go back downhill a little bit. And that's what happened yesterday. Growth is not linear when you're talking about an offensive line with two rookies in it. There are going to be some games hodgepodged in there where it's going to be an up and down cycle. And they had a hard time with the stunts, the twists that were being ran by the front line, the blitz. And JJ Watt. And Joseph <laughs> did a fantastic job. The communication wasn't always there for the Seahawks. They're going to learn from that. They're going to go back and watch the film. You know, Charles Cross and Abe Lucas are going to watch and be like, I'm better than that. And they're going to come back and they're going to learn from that experience. But there's going to be games like that. So I don't consider it a huge negative. But that was really what set this offense back yesterday more than anything was the pass protection was not good. Most of the game, Geno Smith was under duress. Now, flipping back over to the defense real quick, we had a chance already to talk about the schematic differences, You know, running more fire zone blitzes, going back to some bare fronts, really allowing their interior defenders to get after the quarterback and use their athleticism as penetrators. That, to me, was a big deal. But I also want to mention something else that I've noticed here these last couple games, and I'm going to put a quick diagram up to show this here. This is a team that is quickly, even without Jamal Adams, they are leaning heavier on their safeties now in the last couple of games, particularly yesterday. And it might have been just because you're playing a Cardinals team that runs a lot of wide open sets with four or five receivers. But they played Cody Barton just 39% of the defensive snaps yesterday. And this has been a trend. Week four, 62%. Week five, 77%. Then drops down to 39% after the first three games played at least 94% of the snaps. And so I think that that is a noteworthy thing to observe from yesterday's game is that the Seahawks, they seem to be, when they're building this identity, they seem to be leaning more towards a defense where they are playing with one linebacker on the field and they're playing to their strength, which that safety position going into the season was their deepest position. And even without Jamal Adams, get Ryan Neal out there, let him fly around. He had a sack, a pass breakup, flying all over the field. You're going to play Kobe Bryant basically every play. He's getting better each week. So again, it goes back to that identity. There's going to be games that Cody Barton plays a lot more than he did yesterday, but it does look to me like the Seahawks have at least figured out to this point He can't be the guy that we have out there 80 plus percent of the time. We need to take advantage of our safety talent and we need to be creative with how we deploy that personnel. And they did a really good job of that yesterday. They they certainly did. And I think it's a lot easier again, when you get six sacks from six different players, 
Um, and your secondary starts to play, you know, you know, absolutely unbelievably. I mean, I, I just kind of gushed before about Ken Walker the third. I mean, what about Tariq Woolen? What about Kobe Bryant? I mean, you know, the the the, the Peanut Tillman com, you know, comparisons have got to start if you're going to have that Gale Sayers comparison. And that's one I agree with, by the way. But the way that Kobe Bryant is consistently punching the football out. You know, Rondale Moore, Marquise Brown, those two players in particular should be very, very difficult receivers for the Seattle to match up against. Both of them can absolutely fly. Both of them are a little bit shorter. They should have that quick twitch that's going to give a guy at 6'4", like Tariq Woolen, all kinds of problems. They're going to give a guy who ran in the four fives like Kobe Bryant all kinds of problems, and yet Seattle blanketed them. And so to me, that is one of the reasons why we are starting to see, uh, you know, whether it be Kobe Barton, whether it be whoever else, and we're seeing Seattle start to transition a little bit to playing more of the secondary. But while on the subject of Cody Barton, I do think that we need to make sure that we have that conversation about special teams. And I thought the special teams played pretty well for the most part. Again, another incredible performance by Jason Myers. You talked about yeah, the, of the season, Corbin, that, that, you know, this is, you know, one of those even years and, you know, Myers is spectacular on even years. It's the odd years in which he plays oddly. So I thought that we, you know, certainly need to acknowledge that Michael Dix, I thought, had a pretty good performance other than the fact that, hey, just get the ball out of the air. But it's difficult when your personal protector, and it looked like that was supposed to be Cody Barton in this case. Nick um, Bellore took the blame after the game. Uh, so interesting, interesting, because when I watched the tape, I really thought that it was between – Tinker, the, the long snapper, Barton on the left side. It just looked like there was a mix-up there. And so if it is Nick Ballore, the most veteran of Seattle special teamers who made the mistake there, then frankly the tape, at least from what I saw, did not suggest that. But again, I, I'm I'm not a Seattle special teams coach, but just watching the tape, I thought that there was a mix-up there. And I'm not sure who made the mistake, but clearly that was an ugly mistake that should have turned this game around. And a credit to, again, the Seahawks offense, their defense, and certainly the 12s for being able to keep this a Seattle victory because it didn't look like at that point that that's what it was going to become. The Seahawks won this game with how they responded to that adversity. Yep. I truly believe that the series of plays after that uh, fumble in the end zone by Michael Dixon, the way the Seahawks came right back and then marched down the field, Ken Walker, the third punches it in from 11 yards out, made that look way too easy. Stiff arm, then boop, to the outside rockets yeah. on and scores the only offensive touchdown the entire game for them. The, the struggles they had had all game finishing drives too. for them to go out and do that. That was extremely impressive under those circumstances. And it took all the wind out of the Cardinals wings at that point. They might've had the momentum, but it completely took it back after that. Like we literally get gift a gift there. And then we're turning around and giving up seven points right back the other way. It was just one of those games for the Cardinals and the Seahawks. Every time they needed to respond, they found a way to do it either on offense or defense. And they had some good special teams play. So yeah, that was a really bad special teams mishap two weeks in a row that that's happened with Michael Dixon. This one, I'm not pinning on him though. He had no way to punt the football. The pass, prote the protection in front of him was not executed properly. He couldn't get the ball out. So a little different than last week. They've got to get their special teams cleaned up and getting Travis Homer back as early as next week could certainly help in that aspect that maybe their best 
non-kicker, non-punter special teams player, getting him back out there would certainly bolster the third phase of the game for the Seahawks. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at Corbin Smith NFL. You can follow Rob at Rob Rang. Check out Locked on Seahawks and Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and streaming five days a week on YouTube. We'll be back tomorrow dishing out some weekly grades, a little bit of Tell the Truth Tuesday, some last-minute hot takes coming out of Sunday's game, and much more. You won't want to miss it. Enjoy the rest of your Monday. Thanks for listening. Go Hawks.